Did you just say Boom. come for the crumbs scene? In the field, in the lab next door. Got the plots you've been waiting for. Hello, professor. Here's the rub. It's misbehavior. General club. Hello, world. I'm your knockout girl. It's misbehavior. General club. Welcome, listeners, to The Misbehavior Journal Club. I'm Amiel Marino, PhD, here with Leah Krevit, BAMF. And we are two scientifically trained and certifiably funny females bringing you the behind the scenes look at the latest neuroscience research with humor, replicability, and humanity. Yeah, we are. Getting right into highlights from this week, I had irony come and knock at my door in the middle of the night. What happened? I was okay. So I've been putting out job applications and there is a site that wanted me to do a writing assessment for them on insomnia. And I was going to be able to actually get paid for it. So I was really excited. Hey, what it is, what are the symptoms, what are common treatments, when to go see your doctor, like stuff for a health site. And I could not sleep at all. Uh, I was just laying there remembering all my stupid tips that I read about. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't look at the clock on me, Al. <laughs> wow. Yes. No, that reminds me of the first time that I started learning about, you know, the bio of sleep. Um, sophomore year, AP psych, trying to go to bed and knowing that I didn't have enough time to, you know, time out the cycles and just sitting there thinking like, if I don't fall asleep in the next 10 minutes, then I'll be fucked. That doesn't calm you down. Sleep anxiety is counterproductive. Thanks a lot. That helps me right now in this moment. (laughs) Fucking asshole. Oh, perfect. I'm sorry slash mazel tov. Well, no, because I sent that in to them and they never got back to me. So I haven't gotten paid and I'm worried it's a scam and I'm searching online to see if it was posted somewhere and I'm not getting paid for it. I, my contact person is just not returning two emails at this point. So fuck a duck. That's yeah. That kind of sucks over here. Sorry, man. You just Mm -hmm. gotta keep at it. (laughs) It sounds, it sounds trite, but it's true. You know, uh, I keep talking about, you know, all the death that, you don't really see when you learn about evolution or genetics or, I guess, life in general. Um, uh-huh. uh, but, you know, you got the Dr. Seuss, everyone rejected all my shit, except when they didn't. Mm. Same thing. Same principle. Thanks. I've been trying to do the, well, just work harder. Well, just work harder. Mm. Well, just work harder. And I think I need to do the Scrooge McDuck work smarter, not harder. Is that a Scrooge thing? Well, that's where I learned it as a child. Okay, right. No, fully, I I didn't catch the ducks. The only thing I associate with Scrooge is diving into a pile of money. There's that and his motto. One of them was work smarter, not harder. Yeah, so I reached out to my alumni association. I'm going to try to see if I can network my ass off. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a check in the smarter, not harder column. What have you been up to? Stuff. (laughs) You look so excited. I am so excited. It's been very exciting. You know how I'm always harping on how bio is just shapes that fit together or don't? Yeah. So I've been talking about this laser cutter that I've been using um, and how you can make stuff out of plastic. I have been trying to make a puzzle based on cell bio. You're making a puzzle? I was trying to. It's more shape-based than like picture-based, you mean? Both. Oh, dear God. Oh my Don't worry, I failed. But Don't it's worry, fantastic. I've never made a puzzle and now I'm attempting this multi-dimensional one. <laughs> well, in trying to cut it out, uh first for this one test cut, I set the power for too low and or the, the speed for too high. Whatever the situation, not enough laserage. Um okay. and so instead of cutting out these neurons, it made basically a stencil. And so I suddenly had this, like, license plate size brain cell stencil. Mm. I usually don't like hand drawing stuff. Not into it. Not a figure drawer. Okay. Um, But I have been having a time with it in one of those, like, I can't believe I get paid for this shit ways. Making these um, 
I call them cellscapes and I stand by it, but I feel like a big dork saying it out loud. That does uh, sound very dorky. <laughs> making these cellscapes um, and drawing these figures over and over and over, the thing that I don't like about stuff like that is that I didn't think it would capture the variability that you see in nature. It's like, no, not everything is an exact replica of the other thing. Mm-hmm. Straight lines like, don't exist. Yeah, tell that to my bones. But I get your point. Point taken. Uh, point. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's a my straight line. Yeah, my finger's crooked. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah. And what happened was when you draw the same thing over and over, variations still do appear. Even with a stencil. Yeah. Just Mm -hmm. because you're a human being drawing things. And so that's been really nice to see. And furthermore, what happens is that there are some traits that are, like, harder to deviate from. Oh, yeah. Like, if you have a mutation at this part, Uh you know, you just die. But if you have a mutation Uh in this part, oh, it's just variability. Yep. So it's been wonderful. I haven't had much experience with art supplies that like constantly make you think so hard about mutation rates and also like the way that a protein structure like changes if it's in solution. Like that's why my favorite art go-to is to lay all these conformers on top of each other because they look kind of like octopuses. Like there's this one body that stays together then a bunch of different tentacles that are the different like the tail swinging. I'm sorry, what is that? Oh God, I sound insane. A protein Um, what? A protein chunk in solution NMR. So there are a bunch of different ways to get the structure of a protein, like X-ray crystallography or uh, electron microscopy. One way is NMR of the protein, but when it's floating in solution. Mm -hmm. And so like, if you think about a protein chunk, some of them are very stable. I'm a small little chunk and I've got all these uh, disulfide bridges. So even if I'm floating around in solution... I'm just going to stay the same. Got it. And then there are others that are like, I'm made of two subunits and I like flop around depending on whether I've got a ligand in my binding site or not. Mm -hmm. And so those, if you like try to take a picture, it's like taking a picture of a dog versus an adult human who can be told to stay still. If you Mm -hmm. like take five pictures in a row of a dog and then lay them all on top of each other, you'll have like a crazy dog moving around thing. That's what it looks like when you lay a bunch of protein chunks on top of each other. If you made their structures using solution and a this has gotten so far afield. Yeah, Leah, I'm gonna have to ask you to cut it out. <laughs> we can just cut out the entire solution and uh, Just make sure that your power is the correct setting and we'll just uh, cut it. <laughs> Dial up that laser power and cut it out. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and so, yeah, same applies to science. When you draw the same thing a bunch of times, I was worried that it would look the same, but it doesn't because no. life never does. And biology is full of variation and we have to embrace it. Oh, that's beautiful. Yay. Science. science. Does variability ever come up on our show? Is that something we have to contend with ever? Yeah, you'll say things like uh, three different ways. <laughs> like not realize it and I have to pick the best way that you said it. <laughs> and it's not always the last one. Often it's the first time or the second time you've attempted to say it. I wonder what the order effect is there. Because, yeah, I'm sure sometimes it's the last one and something. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, sure. Sometimes. <laughs> or or none of them are good and I ask you to do it again. <laughs> I have a problem with not stopping talking when I really should. I can wholeheartedly relate, my <laughs> friend. Other people are just so bad at talking. It's not <laughs> my fault. <laughs> like, I'll stop talking when I run out of interesting and or useful things to say. They're just standing around. I've been to a lot of meetups lately and I've been trying to like keep the party going and mm. like, but yet not talk through other people when I finally do get them talking. It's an art. It really is like trying to light a fire and sometimes you got to put a, a different kind of fuel in at different yeah, places. Stop adding too much air. <laughs> I think you're going to blow it out now. Also, fire can be a very effective conversation starter. 
I still don't know what fire is. All right, <laughs> shared announcements. <sighs> Do you want to go back into the archives of Misbehavior Journal Club? Well, then join our Patreon and check out the first 1 to 23 neuroscience goodness episodes. We'll try our best to keep them coming and available for all of our lovely Patreon subscribers. She's she's not just being, you know. Don't overthink Thanks. it. <laughs> <laughs> I followed your advice. I didn't overthink it. Or think it. Last night I went to a bar. It was Sunday. And apparently Sunday in this bar is art night. And they've had these huh. sketchbooks that they passed out that people had been drawing on every Sunday night. And they give you a bunch of crayons and markers and pens. And you just get to doodle. It's awesome. And the one rule was, don't overthink it. Mm. And as an adult doing an activity like that that has no consequence... You often start overthinking it. Yeah, and it's so dependent on the context and who you're making it for, even if it's yourself. Like, what different purposes are you making it for? Um, Like, what different purposes? Like, you mean... Am I making this to give to someone? Am I making this to use as a decoration? Am I making Mm. it to use as a decoration in the parts of the house that only I see or the parts of the house that show up on Zoom? (laughs) 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 Um... Is this a first draft just trying out a new technique? Am I giving myself permission to totally fuck it up or to make it five-sixths of the way and then totally fuck it up? Um, The answer for all of those in my case is it better come out perfect the first time. (laughs) Oh, man, what a way to live, you poor fuck. I'm constantly disappointed, but producing really good stuff. (laughs) Uh, Well, what did you produce this time? And did you manage to not overthink it? Yeah, I ended up doing like uh, little tally marks that um, were alternating directions and starting at a pretty regular pace, growing out from one corner of the page. And then as it got further, I introduced more variability with different colors and like then dots instead of lines. And then some of the lines which just started to bleed through all the way to the edges of the paper and it got like more chaotic as it went. And it was because I had seen that new movie everything all the time all at once how was it it was so good it was so good i loved that i had no idea what was going to be around any next corner in the storyline nice you don't often get that highly recommend it you should you will definitely enjoy it i've heard it's extremely good it was packed like they just recently cut down the number of show times available for it i don't know why ah nice and it came out a while ago it did. Cool. Now it's time for notable news. All right. Beep a deep beep boop. In this segment, we're going to briefly present a number of noteworthy events or findings from the world of science. 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 This article is from the journal Human Brain Mapping. It's titled Brain serotonin transporter is associated with cognitive affective biases in healthy individuals. It's out of Copenhagen University Hospital, Rigsidhospitalet. First author is Armand, and last author is Steinbach. So first I need to define cognitive affective bias. It's when you think, cognitive, about emotions you witness, affect, in a skewed, biased way. An example of cognitive affective bias that I remember is if there's a crowd of people and they all have various looks on their faces, smiling versus non-smiling, you're more likely to remember the non-smiling faces, even if there are less non-smiling faces in the crowd. That's an example of how the affect, the emotions displayed by others, lead to a bias because it's almost more important to humans to notice a non-smiling face than a smiling one. A perfectly salient example. Um, And that reminds me of non-face related phenomena where you'll remember the one criticism (sighs) in a a bucket full of nice things. 
Yeah, it's why uh, Twitter is so demoralizing for people who have uh, large accounts and they're getting feedback, even though 90% of the feedback they're getting is good from fans of theirs that are encouraging them. What's going to keep you up at night is that insomnia paper. No, I mean, uh, what's going to keep you up at night (laughs) are the few (laughs) negative comments that people made. And now I'm starting to wonder about resting bitch face. People who have resting bitch face, I'm, be- I'm guessing some percentage of them might actually have a perfectly neutral resting face, but okay. people keep telling them, hey, your face is bitchy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a silly hypothesis, but I stand by it. Well, I can tell you exactly who does that. People who have way too many serotonin transporters, according to this study. Hmm, tell me more. Okay, there's this neurotransmitter called serotonin. Whoa, zero like blood? What? Oh, shit. You're right. Okay. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter that is related to mood and disorders such as depression. How much serotonin there is available in reactive areas where it can have an effect on the brain depends on how many or how active the transporters are at removing that neurotransmitter from those areas. So that's how the amount of a transporter can have a direct effect on the ability of serotonin to work in a system. Yeah, that serotonin transporter and other proteins in that pathway, one of the best reviews I have read was actually in a blog. I'm sure that's the kind of thing that's happening more and more now, but... You mean just, a paper or an overview? Yeah, just here's okay. the state of the field. Just a really responsible overview. Again, from like WordPress or whatever. Fun. Research happens in a society. It happens everywhere. And if you want to learn more about these molecular players, there are a... There is a whole bunch you can go and read your fucking self. You will never run out of reading material on that subject. I know that sounds true of like every question, and it is, but that's how complicated and well-studied the serotonin transporter molecular bio has been studied. Oh, hundreds, hundreds of labs, thousands, tens of thousands of people just working on serotonin and all of the various things that it does. Yeah, gallons of blood tested and spilled in the analysis and uh, fights, the serotonin wars. Okay, so in this experiment, they used PET, which is positron emission tomography, right? Oh, shit, did I get that right without reading it? (laughs) Who's a doctor now? (laughs) Nice. Okay, they used positron emission tomography, which is taking a carbon atom and making it radioactive. So they can trace where it is. And specifically, they were making sure that the serotonin transporter protein was labeled so they could measure exactly what the levels of it were in specific brain regions in these healthy patients that were used in the study. They tested the effective bias in emotional recognition of people. And to do this, they measured how fast people can recognize emotions on faces that are presented on the screen. Basic emotions, like happy face, an angry face, a fearful face. The contrarian in me is going to be calm and quiet. From having been in in studies like these, I can uh, actually report, those are not basic emotions. (laughs) Like Happy, uh, disgust, angry, fearful, sad. Those are the most basic emotions there are. What does it mean for an emotion to be basic? All cultures. When, When is happiness basic versus complex? What makes the difference? It's something that a number of different societies have all been able to recognize what a happy face looks like. It's not a complex emotion in that it's recognizable by people. What's, What's an emotion that would be not recognizable? Well, you've seen... Haven't you seen those wheels that are all emotions? I use it often in therapy. The outer edge is really specific. And then as you get closer, it becomes more and more simplistic. So like in the very center, you have sad, mad, scared, joyful. But in the very outer edges, you have like isolated, sarcastic, like things that are less recognizable just on a face. I hate this whole subfield. Proceed! 
That's the best I can do for a yes and. I hate it so much. And that doesn't need to be a bad thing. This it's is full of very smart co- people doing hard is, work. Yeah, cognitive affect. This is something that's really basic in humans. So explain it like I'm stupid. How do we decide which words are better to use for emotions? It depends what your goal is. If your goal is to be able to describe exactly what you're feeling, a more precise section of the wheel would be better. But if you're trying to identify something on someone's face, it's a hell of a lot easier to recognize joyful than stimulating or amused, which are two separate things, but they're still in the joy pie slice of the wheel. Fuck, if I'm trying to... (laughs) ID apathetic, I might have a more difficult time than if I was looking for bored or if I was looking for the next step further into the wheel, sad. So what's sad the difference? Sad is a basic emotion. Apathetic isn't. Sarcastic isn't. Jealous isn't. I mean, what, what's your problem, Faith? So many, so many problems with this. What is the difference between apathy and boredom? Oh, apathetic means you don't care. Bored means you wish you did. That's, um, this isn't an endorsement, but I will be thinking about that for like the full rest of the day. That's a wonderful thing you just said. You look bewildered. Uh, I am. Have you, do you, you, have you met me? Do you know what happens when you try to talk? Maybe you're more pensive or (laughs) definitely not serene. Fuck words, man. Okay. So like. Uh, No, all of this is great. I, I do just want to say, I um, this this whole time, the person who uses words in me is going to be screaming internally, but we can just kind of skate along it. But I, I really do enjoy this. I, for as I really much need you to f- don't okay. stop the train. Wait until the train's at the station and then fix Jump the wheels. Jump in front of it. You know? I shouldn't have said that. What, that was a terrible thing to say. What did you say? Okay. The train's full of Nothing. refugees? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> um... I think thinking about these as kind of high res versus low res is going to help me be a little more okay with it. There's a reason I moved over to mice. Yeah, I'm glad you did. (laughs) You know how much I would love to fight to the grievous injury about the general study of, of emotions and faces, but what I think would be funner to do is to focus on the process by which these facial stimuli are created. So, like, how do they generate those images that are, like, 30% scared and 40% sleepy? Totally. Okay. So, what they'll do is they're not trying to get people into a photo shoot and say, Now, give me 10% scared. Perfect, Kathleen. You're making love to the camera. No, that's 80% scared. Flash, flash. Now, 30% disgusted. Yeah. Dial it back. Dial it back. Great (laughs) job. Um, no, they're taking a bunch of pictures of the face in like a neutral position. And then at those more extreme, now show me what happy looks like, disgust, angry, and using software, they can create a gradient of faces between those two extremes and be able to create the 30% sad and the 50% disgusted faces that they need. So that means that for, as a participant in one of these studies, for every one face you see, there's like a whole folder full of hundreds of other slight variations. Sure. (laughs) That's beautiful to me. Yeah, I got to use some of that software. You get to upload a face. The software has some predetermined important points of facial tomography guess morphology that you label okay this is where the eyebrows are this is where the sides of the eyes are this is where the tip of the nose width of the nose and so then you map it all on and then it'll be able to find middle ground between the two maps that you're trying to merge together perfect so so with these basic emotions characterized as they are and argued over by many a, a conference full of people what did they find when they looked at it So they tested people's ability to be able to perceive these emotions. Basically, how fast could they recognize a smiling face versus how fast can they recognize an angry face? 
when we just boil down a test of measuring human faces down to a metric. All right. Also, fuck me. Also, <laughs> fuck me. Okay. <laughs> so what did they find? They were looking at the frontostriatal and frontolimbic brain regions. They found higher levels of serotonin transporter and thus higher clearance or removing the serotonin from reactive areas were related to more negative bias in participants. Huh. So to put it another way, the less serotonin that you had available, the more quickly you were able to recognize the negative faces that were displayed. So there's this gradient, even in people who aren't depressed, just regular healthy people, to quickly identify specific emotions in others depending on the amount of this particular protein in the brain. It is amazing the relationships we're able to infer these days. I love when there's gradient findings too, <laughs> that you can like, it's not like click on, click off. It's like we see spectrums of behavior and abilities to recognize things like emotions and others. And it turns out there are underpinning little proteins that are responsible. Yes, humans are squishy. So, so squishy. <laughs> Endlessly squishy. Mm -hmm. yeah, cool. Yeah, fascinating topic. Great. And it kind of relates to the feature journal article that we're going to be talking about, which also has to do with the processing and recognition of emotion, but that's going to be in a clinical population, not quote unquote healthy participants. Let's do it. All right, now we're moving on to our feature journal article. I'll be presenting it this week. It's out of translational psychiatry entitled Altered Amygdala-Shaped Trajectories and Emotion Recognition in Youth at Familial High Risk of Schizophrenia Who Develop Psychosis. It's out of Harvard Medical School, but most of the research was conducted at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. The first author is Guimon, and the last author is Keshavan. So when I read Altered Amygdala-Shaped Trajectories... I just want to break that down for anyone who's listening to that. It's like, wait, sorry, what? That's a lot of words that you don't usually see in that particular order. It is uh, a weird one, yeah. Does this mean they looked at how the amygdala develops and the shape that it starts out as and the shape that it ends up as? That it trajectories into? <laughs> yeah. 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 This is a longitudinal study. So they are looking at the shape of the amygdala along a timeline. That, I mean, I guess that's part of the reason that that's a phrasing you don't often see is that longitudinal studies are, I mean, there are plenty of them, but as far as studies we would like to do in general, they're still in the minority. So it's always nice to see one. Because they're so, so hard. Okay, you know what else is going to be hard is um, audience members who are sensitive to this disease because it affects them or somebody they love. I want to stress that I'm never going to be making fun of people with schizophrenia, but we are still a comedy podcast who will be talking about this in more of a lighthearted approach or laughing in the face of it, not laughing in the face of people who are suffering with it. And I know I bring her up a lot, but Maria Bamford really walks that line particularly well. If yeah. you finish listening to this and you're like, I want to hear more jokes about brain shit. She's coming from this position where she actually can say that these things touch her life, like a black comedian commenting about black culture, you know, whereas a non-black comedian can't, you know, like if you're suicidal, then you can talk about suicide and your personal unique experiences with them. Well, and I think another thing there is that personal experience tells you where the really funny things are. Oh, yeah. In yeah. a way that can be hard to access from the outside. That's, yeah. All right. Good setting. Good scene yeah. setting. I certainly have not been personally affected by schizophrenia, um, but it's a debilitating medical disorder and it affects seven out of a thousand people worldwide. Yeah. So every, okay, Leah, I know you know this. 
every single brain region is affected by schizophrenia. There are entire studies that are just looking at inhibitory neurons and how they're everywhere in the brain and how they're affected yeah. by schizophrenia and how sensory areas are and amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. Like, you could look at any area of the brain, but... This study decided to look at the amygdala and the hippocampus. So let's give a quick little review on what those do. Thank you so much for that contextualization. Bless you. Yeah, it's a very complex thing. And because of not necessarily their lack of understanding of the complexity of the disease, but more their interest in emotion recognition and verbal learning is why they looked at these two areas. Which, by the way, if you hear that and you're like, hmm, I want to learn more about other regions uh, that, that aren't the amygdala or hippocampus, um, great place to start would make one of our friends, Nicole Davies, very happy. Cerebellum. Mm, mm-hmm. A lot of stuff going there. It's super wrinkly for a reason. And there's a lot of <laughs> learning and memory. Goodness. The amygdala, let's be... <laughs> Let's piss off every neuroscientist listening and say... Let's do it! it, Yeah. You know what it does? It deals with emotion. Yay. Schizophrenia patients have a lower ability to recognize emotion in others. They also have uh, problems with memory. The hippocampus, its primary job is memory and... There's a body of work that suggests that schizophrenia patients have lower ability to learn verbal stimuli. So when people say the hippocampus is important for memory, um, a thing that it can be important to specify is that it's important for forming memories. Mm -hmm. You can have amnesia in that you can't remember shit, but there's also amnesia in that you can't make memories of shit. And I'm Uh, sure everyone listening knows there's a bunch of different types of memories. There's memories of facts and then there's memories of events. But in addition to that, there's memories of pictures and there's memories of things that you're being told verbally, which is specifically what they're looking at measuring here. And so if you hear something like memory is affected, your first thought might be like, oh, they have trouble remembering things from, from days of old. But also that can influence every aspect of your current functionality Mm -hmm. if you cannot make or access memories about how to function in the world. Previous researchers have measured the size of these two areas, the amygdala and the hippocampus, to try to understand if changes or differences in the volume of these areas can be predictors of somebody, what is called converting from non-psychotic to a state of psychosis. It's the worst conversion you can do. Would you like a mood lightning tangent about religion? Yeah. As a kid, I used to think that the word for changing religions, I I heard the word converting once or twice, but Mm -hmm. I encoded it as confronting. Uh, Like I thought if you converted religions, you had to go to your old minister or whatever and be like, I'm not doing this anymore. Bullshit, I'm out. I wish that's how it worked. It seems cathartic, but yeah, nope. Another word. Yeah, so they used, they converted or conversion a lot. It's uh, something that I haven't seen in the text before, but was all over this paper. Past studies haven't been consistent in finding that volumes were or were not different in converters. But they've used different ages of subjects, different patient groups, imaging methods. Um, You can look at somebody who's at different time points in developing the disease, or you can do a longitudinal study where you're looking at the same person developing the disease. These authors are pointing to these inconsistencies as potentially one of the reasons why we can't get a consensus on this as well as maybe we shouldn't just be looking at volumes of brain regions, but instead the structure or the shape of the regions. No shit. But also, I mean, yeah, matching technical advancements. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And when we get to the methods, some of the new algorithms that are available. So the strategy for this paper was to look at the amygdala and the hippocampus of youths, and specifically high-risk youths. 
And this high risk is based on their familial relationship with schizophrenia. Familial high risk is FHR. And I found that saying FHR really fast doesn't work with my mouth. So I'm just going to call it fur. You're either either familial high risk and you convert to psychosis, so you're fur positive, or you're familial high risk and you don't convert, and that's fur negative. So I'm going to call them fur plus and fur minus. Is that okay with you? I don't have a problem with it. Okay. It's kind of weird. I keep on thinking furries, but... That's my first thought, too. Don't think that. That's my first thought. (laughs) All right. FR, FH, I just can't do it. Okay. They wanted to look at this longitudinally and they decided that they could reasonably do this for three years to see if these individuals converted during that time. Their hypothesis being that familial high risk individuals who convert to schizophrenia, quote, would show abnormal longitudinal trajectories of both structures the amygdala and the hippocampus, as well as lower memory and emotion recognition performance compared to for negative and healthy controls. And how'd they do this? They used good old MRI. Nothing functional about it. We're just looking at the shape of the brain. We're not going to look at how it's functioning at all. They also used MAGET brain segmentation analysis. This allowed them to measure not only volume, but also do a shape analysis to measure the changes of these regions over the three years that they were performing scans. This is how they calculated slope of change for each participant. I have a link right there. I'd love for you to check out the MagEd website so you could see their logo. Okay, Oh, huh. Wow, yeah. Isn't that badass? Slightly evil looking? And I'm looking at it from the top. Tell me what you're seeing. I am seeing a somewhat stylized picture of a brain where either the brain stem or the very top of the brain is made to look like a cobra with its tongue sticking out. The tongue is sticking out either as the optic nerve or as the beginning of the spinal cord, and I really can't fucking tell, and that's an embarrassing moment for me. They took advantage of how the brain is shaped, kind of roundish, when you view it from above or below, and so they made it look like the crown of a cobra when it's, like, displaying its big head thingy. Oh, and I didn't even... Okay, I was so focused on trying to tell, you know, how that mapped onto the brain that I didn't even notice that, yeah, part that looks like a brain is, um, it, it looks like the, the flared neck hood thing of a cobra. Okay, that is awesome. And yeah. I'm sure this is viewed from upside down now. I feel very foolish about earlier. This is, okay, I'm into it. It took me a minute to come around. It really did. Isn't it badass? Pretty, it looks evil, though. <laughs> well... Have you ever met a brain, Amiel? <laughs> or a cobra. Or, or tried to study the brain using computational approaches. I bet it must feel very evil if you have that kind <laughs> of relationship with it. Why are you made of so many numbers? Ah! So they scanned these people's brains at multiple times, and they also tested the emotional and verbal abilities of these healthy controls and FHR youths over the course of three years. It's hard not to notice with longitudinal studies because they do present exactly what data they have and what data they don't. It's really hard to not notice missing data. Mm. You might have a small number of, in this example, baseline scans from your fur positive group because, yeah, some of their patients did convert to psychosis. And it's a real shame that in those individuals, we don't have the first year's scan for some reason. Yeah. And also, you know what's not conducive to making and keeping a bunch of appointments? What? Psychosis. <laughs> well, they're also young, and so you would think that their their parents would be taking care of that, but it's familial high risk, so their their immediate family might be dealing with somebody else who is schizophrenic. So kind of have to take care of a bunch of other things right now. Thanks. Kind of busy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame, it happens, and unfortunately, it's glaring whenever it does. Better glaring than 
lurking. Yeah, very true. And I love the longitudinal approach. I'm guessing they're still going with it. They follow them for three years, which is not the longest period of time to capture this. So that's just something to keep in mind with all of this is that like, what happens in six years? Who fucking knows? But Mm -hmm. yes, excellent. Good start. Not trying to rain on this parade. Just give, give, give it a little, give it a little cloud cover, a little shade break. Great point. I'm glad you mentioned it. What they found was that out of the 82 fur youths that they had, 10 developed some sort of psychosis. That's a high fucking rate. It is from our one out of 100 to 10 out of 80 because they were looking at the familial high risk group instead of a general population. Especially in such a short window, that three year period I was bitching about earlier. Yeah, they, they got some. And it's only 10, but that's how many people you need to have in your study to get 10. And that's, a, and we're like, wow, they got 10. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this incredible. shit is hard. So I got to learn a bunch about the different types of psychoses. So do you want to learn about them? Absolutely. Okay, so there's general schizophrenia, boring, or you could have schizoaffective disorder. Yeah, that's a tough ass one. That's like a brownie sundae. You have the brownie, which is schizophrenia. And then on top of it, you also have a affective disorder like bipolar disorder or borderline personality. And you're dealing with both of those things at the same time. I would call that like the worst ex-girlfriend ever. Or like a sharknado. Like it's not just a tornado. (laughs) Chunk of shark infested waters. It's both. Yeah, it's a bad thing. I don't, I think it's my lack of eating sugar that made me jump to a dessert analogy. Ooh. I'm still doing that. So then there's also schizophreniform. That is when you display the symptoms of schizophrenia, like psychosis or other symptoms of schizophrenia, but it's only for a short amount of time, like six months, three months, or a year. And then as far as they know, you don't show it after that later in life. And that thing of, you know, the different timescales on which you measure stuff or the different timescales you use for diagnoses, that can really be a mindfuck while you're waiting them out, you know? Yeah. Oh, Like I've known a case where someone had a tentative diagnosis of bipolar disorder, depending on whether or not they had another episode in the next like N months. Those are some long fucking months. Oh, It is very terrifying. Yeah. And this is such a debilitating disease that offers very little recourse for the people who have it. So you're really hoping for schizophreniform. You're hoping that it's just six months and then somehow they don't know how something in your brain changes. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's not there. Like, I want to see this study looking at brain shape and volumes on those people and be like, does it go back to a different shape that makes it somehow better? I'm jumping ahead with the findings. Hell yeah. But no, that sounds like a great next episode. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's also psychosis not otherwise specified. And when it comes to diagnosing these mental disorders, having something like that is sometimes very helpful. And it's kind of like a catch-all for clinicians to be able to get this person the treatment that they need through their healthcare system, even if they're missing like one thing out of a column of symptoms in order to classify as one of the other groups. And if all of this is making you think, hey, uh, diagnostic criteria is super messy and, and brains and behavior are super messy. Yeah, <laughs> welcome. Literally welcome to the fucking club. So in the brain, they found how the brain regions changed between the scans across three years. In the fur positive use, they had significantly altered shape trajectories in the right dorsomedial amygdala. Specifically, they showed a, quote, decrease in displacement or more concave shape of the amygdala with age. Now I'm just thinking about all the differently shaped almonds I've eaten in my life. Just like a little scoop out of it. Oh, yeah, you get those sometimes. Yeah, you get those almonds. I'm never going to be able to look at almonds the same way again. Why do this to me and my almonds? (laughs) Fuck. There was no change in shape, however, with the hippocampus. Also, they weren't able to identify a change in the volume of the amygdala or the hippocampus either. 
For the cognitive and verbal scores, the FER positive had lower emotion recognition scores than the FER negative in the healthy controls, but the verbal memory was a bit mixed up and it wasn't convincing either way on the abilities of verbal memory. All right. Yep, an important part of the picture. These findings highlight a potential specific role of the medial amygdala in emotion processing. Uh, silence the bitch in me that says we, we kind of knew that those chunks were involved in processing emotions. This is just adding to the stack of literature that is looking at the medial amygdala and suggesting a specific way to look at the medial amygdala. And now they were able to identify two biomarkers for psychosis involving role of the amygdala. First, they were able to find a neurobiological biomarker, which is the abnormal change in the shape of the amygdala, and one cognitive marker, which is the lower emotion recognition ability. All right, so going forward, the authors recommend an increased emphasis on this shape as a biomarker risk for mental illness or brain damage, rather than just looking at the volumes of these areas. As a naive outsider to, to human stuff, this seems like one of those things that's like, yes, obviously, but also we have not had the tools mm-hmm. broadly available for like a while. Thank you, Cobra Labs. Like it's like a faceless monster man. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Jesus Christ. Yep, I'm picturing it and I'm picturing it animated G.I. Yeah. Joe stuff. Yep, G.I. Joe, yep. yeah. It's like, That's what's up. Yep. <laughs> oh, snakes really get a bad name. They do. Worms too. Poor fuckers. We should also explore the links between emotional processing the amygdalar shape, and other measures. So we can also add, well, what about genetic components? Or what if we look at specific symptoms? Because there's a huge list of symptoms associated with schizophrenia. What if these Mm -hmm. specific symptoms are more closely related to the shape than other symptoms? And we can potentially look at this during the early stages of psychosis or pre-psychosis to see if somebody's amygdalar is concaving. I support the use of the verb, yep, developing <laughs> concavity. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think concaving is a word, but I love it. It's so fun to say. And I haven't really been called upon to note how important preventative counseling can be, just for people who are in high-risk groups of developing something. I mean, if you get a group of people, like 20 people, where two of them are going to develop a disease, but you don't know which two. Mm-hmm. And you want to prepare them for, you know, what to know before your first psychotic episode. Uh, Patient education. I I seldom think about how much of patient education is preventative. Mm -hmm. Well, it can prevent a lot of things other than the development of the disease that is just as important for the people. If you have that room of 20 people and you tell them you should probably look out for this symptom, this symptom before anything happens, and they're able to identify that in themselves maybe that can stop them from getting arrested, having to go to court, serve time in jail, like all the repercussions that don't have anything to do with the actual trajectory of the disease, but are going to really affect their lives because they didn't know to look for something. This is another great example of how important social determinants of health can be. A certain number of people can have a certain number of episodes, but whether there is police intervention in that episode's can vary depending on your social happenstance. That's another thing complicating all of this. And when you look at attrition. So this is a real easy one to go into Topia Corner for. Topia Corner is a segment where we do what scientists aren't supposed to do. We speculate wildly on the utopia or dystopia the findings of this article might create. Last episode, we mentioned issues with data privacy, and because this is also some human research, it really lends itself to some Topia Corner. We were talking about the scans of a dying brain and how data privacy on brain scans is something that should come into the discussion when we're talking about recording this on individuals. Absolutely. So most research metrics are not clinical metrics. 
when you're clinically diagnosing a mental disorder, they're never putting you in an fMRI and seeing how you're responding to like faces. And they're never looking at the activity on an EEG related to be able to determine if you have schizophreniform. No, it's mostly asking a series of diagnostic questions and um, interviews with people. It's important to remember and be sad about. <laughs> yeah, and stuff like this is why this study is a perfect demonstration of why neuroimaging is still not ready for clinical use. Because we don't know what the fuck anything means yet. Yet. We're getting there. Very slowly. Yeah, this research, these results are really promising because it could lend itself as a clinical metric of, hey, be careful, your brain might be going into psychosis soon. Helpful yeah. to know. Helpful to know, super dependent on delivery. There are good ways and bad ways to give someone advice about what their brain may or may not do. Oh, you mean like by a, a healthcare professional, you know, in a therapeutic setting, usually not like, I don't know. Well, remember how we were talking right. about, ooh, yeah, <laughs> looks yep. like you've got a misshaped brain. That sounds like a cutaway from Lady Dynamite. I would watch that forever. <laughs> yep. But no, remember at the start of the episode, how we were talking about lying in bed, trying to fall asleep, knowing what might happen if we don't get enough sleep. <laughs> Yes. Imagine that, but about your entire perception of reality. That sounds like a stressful time. Nothing about this sounds like a good time. Yeah, um, definitely a dystopia. But okay, it's unreasonable to think that this is going to happen anytime soon, that you're going to get your brain scanned, and then somehow you're going to have that data be leaked and have it negatively affect your well-being in your life. But it's also unreasonable to think that unethical activities would be conducted reasonably. Yep. There's a reason that there is such a major industry in health records and uh, patient clinician communication and mm. all the like various IT security stuff that has to happen. And I have a very hard time believing that all of that is super secure. Well, I'm, not trusting it in the hands of the healthcare system. We've got this capitalistic healthcare system that's looking for any reason to not cover you. And mm -hmm. if you've got a history of a concaved dorsal medial amygdala, that's just giving them another excuse to not provide you care. Yeah. Yep. Or neuroimaging based parole decisions that's come up in the past and mm -hmm. I've seen posters about it and it is, it is within our lifetimes. If someone says something is ready in terms of using neuroimaging to predict prison crime recidivism. Like, no, we're not. <laughs> we're not. And I am so comfortable saying we're not going to get there within our lifetime. Yeah, well, no, I think yes. I am like, immeasurably there are scans that could happen today with no ramifications until 50 years from now when potentially we are able to precog some activities of the brain. And then those scans that you took before the, like, like, coming all over a crime scene didn't really matter in the 1950s and now you're you're screwed oh <laughs> wow i did not think about that specific fetishism until now i need a nightcrawler reboot wow this is i am fully just in that universe you have taken my brain and transported it to there all right, we'll make a joke and i'm just lost in jake jake gyllenhaal's imaginary eyes he wasn't coming on everything but you could recut it with a stunt double. What? And I bet you How wouldn't you even jumping? have to do any no, reshoots. No. Leah, uh, for some reason, I don't know if you noticed this, but your brain went to a place I've been that taken. is not helpful for I'm not coming back. <laughs> discussion. <laughs> Anyways, okay. Leah, can you please stop coming over every crime scene? <laughs> Oof. I um, The reason I've been pretty quiet during this part is that I agree with everything you said. Because, <laughs> okay. yeah, obvious implications. And also, obviously, long time course on getting there. Yes. We also have another fun segment for you called Leah Eats Shit. This is her idea. I swear to God, it's her idea. <laughs> yep. So in the last episode, as Amiel says, we were talking about data privacy and, you know, submitting biological data that 
at present is hard to interpret, but in the future might be easier to interpret Mm -hmm. and to infer really personal shit from. I was saying that like we have the tools now. We don't. I want to be clear. I should have really specified. I do not think at present we are capable of looking at, I mean, an EEG of all fucking things and saying, oh, that person had a psychotic episode 40 years ago or had a history of child abuse or Mm -hmm. the history of math exposure. Like, But again, you can't trust these institutes to be able to use this data reasonably. They could use these biomarkers before they're fully fleshed out and examined fully, you know, researcherly. Nope. That's not a word. Nope. Going with it because it's a functional <laughs> word. And you know how much disrespect I have for words. So make up new ones. I'm into it. Um, if any of this shit interests you, take a bioethics course or don't. Good advice. I'm not the boss of you. And um, my not being the boss of you is something you might go over in a bioethics course. I fucking hated taking bioethics courses. It's kind of interesting to talk about what might or might not happen, maybe someday. But I resented the idea that the chemists didn't have to take these (laughs) fucking courses. The physicists who are going to implode the universe don't have to take these courses. But because we're dealing with something that resembles the soul, then people get all up and high and mighty about you messing with the brain. Actually, yeah, now I'm wondering what the ethics situation is in an engineering curriculum. They don't, I mean, they damn. don't have shit. And they're creating molecules that like can't be destroyed, that are going to pollute and poison for ages and eons. And I'm like, where's your ethics fucking course? <laughs> That's why Dr. Phyllis Gardner was my favorite person to hear from in the Theranos documentaries in Fallout. Okay. Um, I always think people are saying Thanos, the Marvel villain. (laughs) Whenever anyone starts talking about this, I think that they're talking about that guy who wanted to kill half the people in the universe. Do you think they'll convict? (laughs) (laughs) It is a challenge in my life. I struggle for a good five seconds before I put it together. So... Elizabeth Holmes recently got in trouble for scamming a bunch of investors. Elizabeth Holmes, inventor of the... Nothing. Blood testing machine that wasn't. (laughs) Yes, inventor of the nothing. (laughs) One of the biggest nothings in recent entrepreneurial history. Dr. Phyllis Gardner, she was a a Stanford professor, a Stanford professor who uh, Elizabeth Holmes went to visit and talk with and ask about this new tech she was interested in developing and using to change the world. And uh-huh. uh, it wasn't the Edison. It was a little patch that would continuously sample your blood and deliver any medications you need. And Dr. Gardner was like, that's not a, that won't ever be a thing for reasons. And uh, Elizabeth was like, but Yoda, I'm going to do it. And so from time to time she would be, interviewed and she'd just say like yeah it is fascinating being at stanford where all these very young and ethically naive (laughs) students just come into massive sums of money Hmm. ethics yeah Thank you uh, for listening and welcome to Closing Ceremonies. We're going to give you a couple of takeaways that are just little things that we hope uh, keep you company until you join the journal club again. My takeaway is make plans with friends. I highly recommend you just circle back and in the next two weeks, reach out to somebody who you have not talked to in the last three months and check on how they're doing and and make a plan to see them in whatever way makes you most comfortable. That's a wonderful takeaway. And I would like to yes and that shit with an activity you might enjoy doing with your friends. Coming on crime scenes? I guess you can make anywhere a crime scene if you perform (laughs) a crime and then ejaculate. I mean, or otherwise have an orgasm. It's coming on something is linguistically fraught. You can make anywhere a crime scene! (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Brilliant. I'm sorry. This is just brilliant. I mean, yeah, you know, well, just like anything is edible once. Yes. (laughs) 
Speaking of edible things. No, you're telling me about making plans with friends. Yeah, no, they're the same. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's this show where they dissect large animals on camera in front of a bunch of like vet students and uh, Richard Dawkins narrates, which is fine, but Joy Reidenberg or Reidenberg, Dr. Joy, the best veterinarian anatomist in the world. Nicole Davies would like some of her stuff because she goes over um, cetacean heads, among other things, and just, how do animals make sounds? And I think uh, you and your friends do a lot more different activities than me and my friends do. So we got together on Zoom to watch a sperm whale dissection, and it was absolutely magnificent. I thought that since I'd seen it before, I was like, oh, I'll just like you know, give them a heads up when the cool stuff comes up. But there was so much shit I forgot that was amazing. Uh, Imagine doing that at the high seas. Mm, uh, yeah, apparently they can float on occasion. I just recently saw a picture of a polar bear on top of a uh, floating dead sperm whale. Oh, yeah. Reddit showed me that, too. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Being really surprised that, that it was floating, but mm-hmm. I shouldn't have been because gases... <laughs> I'm just amazed that they had boats that could like pick these things up out of the water and then like put them over someplace where they could drain the the oils that they needed and like big vats like they processed it at sea. Yeah, what an amazing challenge. I have never thought about that before. But oh. getting that thing up, Jesus Christ. You yeah. got to read Moby Dick. It's a good book. I heard. What did you like about it? I liked all the um, camaraderie and the weird tales of things that I never knew what they looked like or thought of what you just said. I never thought about that. And then I was actually reading it and it was in prose that was really fun and felt like you were eating your brain vitamins while you were reading it. Now, what would Moby Dick be about if it were about a neurobio researcher? Either in the field or in the lab. Who might their white whale be? Well, isn't isn't every lab just like one crazy captain leading a bunch of variously skilled sailors into the abyss, hoping to find the one thing that they're looking for in the open sea of knowledge? Yeah, and you get like fresh-faced ship's boys and old grizzled lifers who are like, listen... I've got the... Yeah? Yeah, no, please. (laughs) I can't flesh it out because I haven't read Moby Dick. And that's why it's important for science people to read. I was talking with uh, Tom Hage, the other person who comes on the show every now and then, about uh, reading a book. He has a date with a girl who was saying that she reads like three books a week. Damn. And I asked him, when was the last time you finished a like a physical book? And he was like, oh, gosh, you know, I just, well, I finished this audio book. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> a physical book, Tom. When was the last time? He's like, book. I'm halfway through. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a linguistic challenge. Finished book all the way through a book. Two thousand and eleven. Oh my god! <laughs> I don't Oof. even know how to read, and I finished a book last week. <laughs> it took me months, but I did it. Mazel Tov. What ooh, was it? Ooh, it was great. It's um. My favorite historical figure is Genghis Khan, and I read Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. Oh shit, man. How was that? What'd you learn? Very, very fun. You learn all about the different family members that happened after Genghis Khan. So like Genghis Khan starts going and then at some point he dies and you're on page like 150. You're like, well, what the fuck is the rest of the book about? (laughs) (laughs) And there are other cons. There were different levels of pros slash cons and their influence on this empire. And you know what made it all fall apart at the end? What? The Black Death. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. It just, all these supply lines and 
commodities that they were managing the movement of and everything stopped. You couldn't travel. People weren't letting you into cities or cities were dying and yeah, just turned off everything. All those Mongolian marmots getting everyone ill. Was was that biological warfare factoid about flinging or other, otherwise, you know, sending either infected people's corpses or isolated samples, like flinging them over city walls? Was that a thing or just a... If it happened, about? it didn't happen regularly, gotcha. is what I gleaned from the book. Um, it most likely was a story that was told to strike fear in the hearts of future cities that the Mongols were approaching in order to get them to surrender. I mean, that'd do it. Not have to fight yeah. them. Genghis Khan was really great about like, if you surrender, we're all cool. You can come into this really great conglomerate we have and you get all of these smart people will send to learn your stuff and you can send your smart people so they can learn more. And like, he was really all about it. whatever religion you want to do. That's cool. So, you know what hasn't come up is your takeaway. Ah, oh, that was actually my takeaway is that um, you can watch wild dissection videos on YouTube. And there are two, they have two whole episodes. Uh, yeah, cool. Are they different whales? Species? Yes. Ooh. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think one is a sperm whale and one is a minky whale. I might be remembering that wrong and they're both sperm whales, but I, I, I don't think so. That actually takes me to a correction corner. Dolphins do have the ability to taste. They don't have the ability to smell. Their smell organ moved to the fucking roof of their goddamn head and is a blowhole. That doesn't smell anymore, but they can taste things in their environment, specifically swimming through the urine of other dolphins mm. and loving it so much. Oh, man. In fact, researchers, uh, this was according to a, an interview I heard on the science podcast of a uh, researcher that was taking dolphin urine and dumping it into tanks with other dolphins that were familiar with the individuals who had produced the urine, seeing the dolphin go through and get excited and stimulated. And in a couple of cases, that dolphin producing the signature whistle that was the, the pea dolphin's name. Hey, Frank, is that you? Frank? Like, aw, Jenny. <laughs> That's magnificent. Missy Jen Jen. <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck on the question of whether dolphins can smell odorants that they breathe in on the on the inhale, but I don't mean that to overshadow the, the, the delight that is um, dolphin urinary pheromone research. Goddamn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Real cool. Wow. Anyways, that's my correction corner. And also one of my favorite jokes from Nicole Davies from that episode where he's like, Dolphins can taste. I've tasted <laughs> dolphin. Oh my god. Oh, what a jerk. That fucking deviant. Okay, so please follow the show at MisbehaviorJC, and that's on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me, CurlsPhD, on Twitter. Hire me. Hire me now. Or you can check out Leah at Hawks and Socks, and that's Hawks with an X and Socks with a CK. Thank you so much for allowing us into your auditory pathway or urine cloud of your choosing. <laughs> tell your friends and tell your enemies, just do not tell your PI about the show. Please subscribe to the show and really share us with whatever world you enjoy. We hope you join the club again soon. Don't forget to misbehave. Yay! I get a little bit Genghis Khan. I don't want you to